Cool. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andy, and together with Dizzy, we are pastors here at Christ Church, and uh, it's really lovely to see some new faces amongst us, lovely to see some familiar faces. Um, it's, in, it's exciting what the Lord is doing in and through this little church here in Felton. We've been in a series for a little while now entitled The Church on Fire, um, and it is a study in the book of Acts. And uh, what we want to do is learn everything we can about the early church and what lessons we can learn from the early church. It's a wonderful story where uh, it begins with this moment of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fills the church, sets it on fire. And then from Acts chapter 2, very early on, we see the results of, of a Spirit-filled church, what impact it has on the world. It transforms the city. It goes on to transform the world, actually, if you look throughout history, and it um, brings people to faith. So today, we are in Acts chapter 5, um, and we are looking at uh, the ch a church on fire will suffer persecution. Um, when the church is on fire, uh, what often happens is that there will be two responses uh, when people uh, experience the gospel. Um, so when the, when the church goes forward, when the church lives its faith, expresses its faith, when it becomes a move um, by which the gospel um, is spread, a disturbance happens. It causes a disturbance. Um, and when a dis this disturbance happens, when this, when this gospel disturbance happens, there's two responses um, we read this in Acts chapter 2. Uh, firstly, it's, uh, they're, they're the group that says to Peter, what should we do? And Peter's response is, repent and be baptized. Repent of your sins, turn to Christ. And so when the gospel goes out, there are those who, um, as the Lord speaks to their hearts, turns towards him and becomes part. They become part of the Christian community. But then there are others um, and in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, uh, after Peter and all the, the disciples are full of the Holy Spirit and they're declaring the praises of God in all of these different and wonderful tongues, um, there are those who make fun of them, those who mock them. And so we see this dual track going on. We see the growth of the church, but also we see the growth of persecution. When the gospel goes forward, it causes disturbance in the human heart. When it goes forward, it causes disturbance in the city that it finds itself in. And it has one of two effects. It draws people home or it causes um, people to potentially harden their heart and mock or cause persecution to the church. I remember the first time I experienced some level of persecution. I have to admit it was pretty small um, in the context of worldwide persecution of the church. But I came to faith when I was about 12. I remember being in this combined church event, and the preacher up the front asked if, you know, if there's anyone wanted to come down the front and give their life to Jesus. Um, I was like, well, yes, I do want to do that. My friend nudged me and said, have you ever done that before? I was like, no, I've never done that before. So we went down together, and that began really the course uh, of living my life for Jesus. It was kind of an up and down kind of process of uh, through my teenage years where I was, in, I was very fervent and sometimes a bit offensive in how I lived out my life and other times I went into hiding. Um, but all the while, I, you know, a sense that the Lord was at work in me. I was very brave while I was a teenager. Um, I used to bring everyone that I could, I could speak to to church. Um, I saw a bunch of my mates come to faith, um, some of them still traveling with the Lord today. 
Um, others uh, came and were a part of it and then sadly have, have not stuck with it. Um, but I remember this one time at university um, where what I decided was just a very little thing on my phone, a Nokia 3310. Did anyone have one of those? Nokia 3310. We're still we're not going to be long until we mention that and the people in the congregation are like, sorry, Nokia. Um, so... <laughs> So the Nokia 3310, and you know how you could, you could do that, that wild thing of, um, of changing the background so that it had some text on it, or if you were really clever, you could draw a little picture. And uh, my, uh, on my screen, I had got Jesus. It was my own, my, with a question mark, and it was my, my attempt to, uh, you know, evangelize if people saw my phone. I was a daughter. What you can know... Um, if you haven't already realized, is that throughout my whole life, I've been a massive dork. And, uh, and that was mostly reflected in how I, what I did then with my phone. And uh, one of the girls in the, in the class at university um, took my phone, um, saw it, said, got Jesus, and then picked it up and showed everybody in the class. And everyone proceeded to laugh and mock me for having such a ridiculous thing on my phone. And in lots of ways, it was a very little thing. It didn't cost me any friendships, actually. Uh, it didn't, didn't ruin my reputation any because I knew that I was a Christian. It was just embarrassing. Um, but that really rocked me, you know. And, and it was one of those things, such a little thing, but it, it was like, oh, I don't know if I like this whole sharing my faith thing. It is hard work. And so the challenge or the encouragement, I think, in our passage today is that in spite of the persecution we may face, the mockery, the laughter, whatever it might be, um, we need to somehow remember um, that the gospel is good news and that when the gospel goes forth through us, it will cause a disturbance in the human heart and that disturbance can lead to conversion or it can lead to a hardening of the heart and persecution. And uh, our encouragement is that regardless of the response, because that's in God's hands, um, we want to be a church on fire with the Holy Spirit spirit willing to hold out the gospel no matter how it lands and so Acts chapter 5 is a fascinating uh, chapter um, in lots of different ways um, Acts 5 at right at the beginning Luke uh, threw him what can only be described as a hospital pass with Ananias and Sapphira um, but he preached it beautifully and I, I'd recommend jumping on the on the website and listening to his talk um, talking about Ananias and Sapphira how they lied to Peter and to God and we see the swift judgment of God before the people's eyes and uh, so Luke spoke about that what was going on in that moment it says so much about um, the holiness of God. And uh, so I'd recommend listening to that. And then the next week, Terry Ann, another amazing talk, which will be online um, this week. Um, she started to speak about, the, the, I guess, the gravitational pull of the gospel, um, the, the proclamation of, of the kingdom through signs and wonders and through their words, through the church, and how, you know, Peter, this guy who um, in, in many ways had failed, reinstated by Jesus, was able to be by God, a really, really encouraging talk. And again, I'd encourage you to jump online when that goes up early this week. Um, and then today, um, our passage is um, Acts 5, 17 to 32, um, where, like I've said already, the, how this disturbance the gospel causes can cause offense or can lead to the hardening of the hearts of the people around. And so let's have a look at it. Um, I, hopefully it'll be on the screen. If not, um, I'll read it out. So it's um, Acts chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse uh, 17, and it's under the title, The Apostles Are Persecuted. 
And then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full tribunal, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked and with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in the jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins." We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So, Lord, I ask that as we, as we look at this passage of Scripture today, would you speak to us? Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you make us more like Jesus? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit, and would, we, would you use us um, to your praise and to your glory in Jesus' name? Amen. So the passage, what's going on here? So um, the passage before, which Terry Ann spoke on, you can see how the gospel was drawing people to the apostles. It was like a gravitational pull. People were like seeing the signs and wonders. They were hearing the message of Jesus and they were being drawn in close. They wanted to be a part of what God was doing and the church was growing. Then there was another group, and this is who we're looking at today, the authorities and the leaders of the day who were offended by the message of the cross um, and were actually repelled by it. So in verse 17 of our passage today, the Sadducees, it says, were filled with jealousy. So who were the Sadducees and why were they jealous? So the Sadducees, they were, they were like the liberal sect of Judaism. Um, they accepted only the Torah, which was the law in Scripture and nothing else. Um, and they rejected, they did not believe in angels, supernatural gifts, the resurrection, eternal life, heaven or hell. Um, and the Sadducees really were um, theologically compromised when you compare to the more orthodox Jewish people. And they were also politically corrupt. Um, they collaborated with Rome. And so the Sadducees at that time uh, were people with power. They, they were people with popularity, the people with influence. And so they saw the early church as a massive problem. 
all that they stood for, really. They were doctrinally opposed to them. They did, like what, what, what they were preaching about Jesus rising from the dead, they were doctrinally opposed to what they were preaching. They envied um, the growth and the popularity of the early church, and they were threatened by their power and their influence. Um, and so they felt like they were losing control. They felt like they had control of the people, they had the favor of the people, but they were losing that. And so as the church grew and Christians increased in number, they also increased at this time um, in influence and popularity among the people. We see that when they went to grab them from the town center. They they didn't take them by force because they were scared they'd be stoned by the people. But the Sadducees had a lot to lose. And so they made it their business to stop this trend of the church growing. Um, at whatever cost. They had a lot to lose. And so this is why their reaction was that they put them in jail and were doing their best to stop the growth of Christianity um, in this moment in history. And I think this is so often the case, isn't it? Um, The ones that most strongly react against the gospel of Jesus, the ones who react so strongly against um, the cross, are often those people who have will feel they have the most to lose. So the gods of our age, um, and they're often kind of grouped in money, sex, and power, when confronted with um, the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, um, their, their hold or their, um, them being gods is ultimately challenged and, and in the end will be dethroned. So whether it's money, sex, or power, whatever else, when compared to Jesus, when compared to all that's in, on offer in Christ through him rising from the dead, they are left wanting. Um, these things, while they're not sinful in and of themselves, money, sex, and power, they have their rightful place in creation. They are not designed to be ultimate things. They can't bear the weight of being ultimate things. They can't be your savior. As much money as you accumulate it's not going to save you. As much power as you get, it will never fully satisfy you. It might be that you have endless sexual encounters. It will not lead to fulfillment. In the end, it will let you down. And I know, I know this in my own heart. You probably know it in your own heart as well. I feel like, if I'm honest with you, I'm forever chasing after these things. I, somehow in my mind, I feel like, well, maybe if I just had a tiny bit more money, or maybe if I had a, just a bit more influence, or I'll leave the other one. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I feel like I've got, well, I never feel like I've got enough money, basically. I get stressed over it all the time. I'm constantly looking back at the budgets and, and all these kinds of things, when in reality, I know I have more than enough. I know that the Lord has given me enough. And that I'm in a community where I know that if I do get in trouble, I'm going to be okay. I can trust God. I always feel like I never have enough kind of influence or the influence that I I want. But the truth is, God has equipped me. He's chosen me. He's given me all the authority that I need before the creation of the world to fulfill the purposes he has for my life. And so I don't need to crave more power and more influence you know, over people or from other people because I have all I need in Christ. But I'm so often so restless and I pursue these things over and over again. And if I'm honest, when they take the ultimate in my life, they rob me of my joy and leave me thirsty, so thirsty. 
And so it's true, what, you know, we go back to what Augustine said so often, that he said this, didn't he? Our hearts will remain restless until it finds its rightful place in God. And so for the Sadducees, when they were confronted with the gospel, um, they would have realized in that moment that, the, the, that their power and most likely their money um, was being threatened. And so they weren't going to give up with any of that, give up any of that without a fight. And so they put the apostles in jail. And then comically, as God often does these things, um, when you consider that the Sadducees aren't into angels at all, they don't believe in the existence of them, it was, in fact, an angel that rescued the apostles from uh, the prison. So I think, I think for, let me just pause for a second and maybe go on a slight tangent and speak about angels. When I was at college, um, when we were um, uh, talking about all of these kinds of passages, they always taught us to try and anticipate what are the questions that people are going to be asking. It might be that all of this is straightforward except for this one bit about angels. And so let me touch on angels just for a moment, and not just angels, but demons as well. Because I think it's significant to notice, particularly in Acts chapter 5, that the battle that we find ourselves in is not just a physical battle, but a spiritual one as well. And so if you have a look in Acts chapter 5, um, in the passage that Luke um, preached on, um, in Acts chapter 5 verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, um, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept the money you received for the land? Then in Acts chapter 5, 16, which terry was speaking on, um, crowds gathered also from towns and around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those who were tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. And then in our passage today, um, we see that an angel appears and rescues them, the apostles, from prison and tells them what to do next. So in Acts chapter 5, there's clear evidence here um, that there is a spiritual battle going on. There's a spiritual battle going on between good and evil, angels and demons and God and Satan. And then throughout the Old and New Testament, we see that this spiritual realm that is there, that angels and demons are doing all sorts of things. And Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So back then, in Acts chapter 5, or throughout Scripture, right from the very beginning to now, I think it's important um, that we as a church are aware um, that there are spiritual forces at work, particularly evil ones, that work against us um, and God as he looks to mobilize his church with the gospel of Jesus. Martin Luther, um, the great reformer, uh, he, he, he had a lot to say about um, devils. He often said he liked to fart in Satan's face. Um, he had such disdain for Satan. But he said this, that a Christian should know that he is sitting among devils and that the devil is closer to him than his coat or shirt, nay, closer than his own skin. He goes on to write that even angels use their superior power and intelligence to, to try and destroy humans at every opportunity. And so instead of being gripped with fear, um, like you may want to be gripped with fear, this is what Luther then went about praying every day. He said, let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me. 
And then he goes on to say that despite the strength and the cunning of these devils, they do not compare with the wisdom and power of God's holy angels who behold the face of our Lord God and stand in the presence of him whose name is Omnipotence, the Almighty. And I think it's important to say in the midst of this where Luther's talking about angels and demons and the activity that's going on and the spiritual battle that's at work, I want you to be really clear that we, we must never be fooled into thinking that there is a fair fight going on between good and evil in the world, particularly in the spiritual realm. We need to remember, this is the heart of the gospel, God has won through Jesus Christ. Satan never had a chance. At best, right now, he is a nuisance, a big nuisance, and he's looking down to bring Christians and the church, and so this is why we need to be on our guard So we need to have almost like um, a big word, like an eschatological kind of view of this thing. That the battle is won and yet the battle still rages. That Christ has taken victory but the battle still happens. And that's why we pray. That's why we need to be aware of the spiritual forces at work in and around us. And to recognize that the battle that we face is not just merely physical, but there is a spiritual battle going on as well. And so I think C.S. Lewis gives some really good advice for us here when it comes to spiritual spiritual warfare. He says this in Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so I think the advice from C.S. Lewis is be aware but not alarmed. Know this is going on. Knowing, know that the battle is real, but Jesus has won. And so concerning angels then, in particular with our passage, um, angels are often described as messengers who proclaim God's word. So think about Mary or the angels um, in the story of Christmas. Um, they're the ones that proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. Come and see. Um, but not only messages, Hebrews 1.13 um, actually gives this, this Hebrews 1.13.14, give this wonderful description of what angels are up to. And this is what it says, to, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And what, what the writer is saying here is that angels aren't like us. Angels have been sent to serve the Christian, to serve the church. John Piper, when interpreting this scripture, says this, this means that everything angels do everywhere in the world at all times is for the good of Christians. An angel who does something by God's assignment anywhere in the world is fulfilling the promise that God will work all things for the good of all Christians everywhere. This is a sweeping and stunning promise. All angels serve for the good of all Christians all the time. They are agents, he writes, of Romans 8.28, which says, As we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So our angels are there um, to fulfill and protect and equip Christians in the world. 
And so at Christchurch, I mean, I've opened a massive can of worms there, and I've, I've really I've scratched the surface of angels and demons and Satan. Um, but I think the summary, if I can, and if you want to have more, uh, want to chat more about this kind of stuff, I'm really up for pointing you towards Josh Kirkpatrick. Um, so, <laughs> jokes, come and chat to me. And, um, and we, will, we, we can dive into it deeper. But the important thing to note, Acts chapter 5, um, I, it's, not, it's not meant to be an illustration or a metaphor. It, 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 the writer, Luke, is pointing out that there is a spiritual battle going on. That the, that the, the devils, Satan, and angels are at work. Um, uh, but the encouragement is that God's plan, and I'll, I'll speak about this in just a second, God's plans for salvation and renewal will not be and cannot be thwarted by evil forces. Um, that the victory is won in Jesus. And that we have the support of the whole heavenly host as God um, seeks to renew and restore all creation. And so at Christchurch, um, we do believe in the angels and the demons and all of those kinds of things, but we, we believe in them in the context that the victory is won. So I don't want you to, to be living in fear, what are the devils going to do to me next? But I do want to remind you to pray. I do want to remind you to repent of your sin. I do want to remind you, Dizzy, Dizzy spoke on a passage said that passage, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. In the very next verse, it says, because the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to, to, to devour. And, and he can take, the, the enemy can take the, our insecurities, our sin, our brokenness, whatever it is, and bring, uh, he, he can distract us, he can rob our joy, he can do all sorts of things. And so it is a reminder to pray. It's a reminder to come to God frequently, be filled with his Holy Spirit, and remember the victory is won. And also for us to remember that when we're doing this at Christchurch here in Felton, that our battle is not merely physical, but there are spiritual forces at work as well. So you'll often hear me say we don't want to over-spiritualize everything, um, but neither do we want to under-spiritualize everything either. Um, so there may be more conversations that need to be had in and around angels, but I guess that's a start for us. So let's go back to our passage. Um, what did the angels do and say? Um, well, they rescued the apostles, and they said, go and stand in the temple courts and tell the people about this new life, the new life that Jesus gives. And while this is all happening, um, the Sadducees are assembling the Sanhedrin, the tribunal, um, which says to me that the, this, this is a big deal for them. It says a lot about the level of jealousy that they were experiencing. Um, then they got the apostles in before them and said, don't teach in that name. Didn't mention Jesus' name, just said, don't preach in his name. And, and, and instead of not preaching, they said, you've continued to, you've continued to speak and you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of his blood. And so their speech is like there's an undercurrent of fear that's going on. And so then in the face of persecution um, and probably at risk of death, Peter then says, we must obey God rather than human beings. And then goes on to preach the gospel explaining that the whole purpose of the Messiah is to bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins, to make them whole again. Um, and in that speech, he also doesn't let them off the hook for Jesus' death. And then at the end of this episode, so it goes all the way through to the end of kind of verse 42, and David Wilson is going to be picking up um, on this passage next week um, so one little, one little thing that, that, that comes out of this in verse 41 is that um, the apostles are then, um, 
they're flogged. And uh, they would have been in pieces, absolute, like absolute pieces, but they were rejoicing um, because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Um, so it's an incredible story. Lots of things happening. So two quick things, one question, then I'll wrap up. First thing, when the church is on fire, this is what I want you to take away from this passage. When the church is on fire and the gospel is flowing out from it, persecution, opposition, mocking, whatever it might be, will likely happen. If it's not, it might reveal something about the movement of the gospel from this place. And it does still happen today. Persecution of Christians still happens today in a massive way. And I think it's important for us to be aware of that. As we get involved here in, in Felton, as we seek to make Jesus known, as we seek to be a church that's on fire with the power and presence of God, there will be some who will absolutely love it, and there will be others who will be repelled by it. And we, see, we see that in our passage. And this is because the gospel jars against the gods of our age, which I've said. And so as God speaks to people's hearts, there will be a response of either, yes, I need that, or others say, no, I don't want that, and persecution may follow. I think it's important to note again that this persecution comes in the form of physical and spiritual, um, and that persecution around the world is happening at an alarming rate. Our open Doors, um, who do a whole bunch of work serving the persecuted church around the world, they wrote this as a growing trend. The persecution of Christians is getting worse. Five years ago, only one country, that was North Korea, which has been at the very top of the uh, countries that treat Christians the worst. Um, so uh, five years ago, only one country, North Korea, was ranked um, in the extreme category for the level of persecution of Christians. This year, there are 11 countries who score enough to fit in that category. That's extreme persecution. That means imprisonment. That means flogging. That means death. And, and this is happening right now. And it coincides actually with what can only be described as a revival. The growth of the church around the world is unlike anything we've ever seen. In Asia and Africa, the gospel is moving and people are coming to faith in the thousands. It is amazing. We don't see it in the same way here in the UK. We're in a different kind of spiritual climate. But around the world, the church is growing. So when our culture says to us, the church is dying and Christianity would die out, they have no idea what they're talking about because there is a move of God that's transforming the world. And it's only a matter of time until it hits the UK again. And so in China... The church is exploding, and it won't be long until the church in China is the largest Christian country in the world. But in the midst of this explosive growth of the church, um, the, the powers that be, the authorities, those who have most to lose, again, have put regulations in. So it's called the Regulations for Christian Affairs, which came into, forth, sorry, came into force on the 1st of February 2018. Um, and so they've increased surveillance, they've increased the scrutiny of churches. Chinese churches have been pressured to fly the national flag higher than the cross and to sing the national anthem before services, a focus on pro prohibiting children and youth from hearing religious teaching has been 
has seen nursery and Sunday, Sunday schools closed down, summer camps banned, and churches forced to place signs at the entrance, forbidding anyone under 18 to attend. And in several provinces, church meetings have been disrupted. It's not uncommon in China today for pastors and Christians to be arrested and punished for their faith and told, just like they were in, in Acts, to not speak or talk about what they've seen and what they've heard. And yet, the church continues to grow. It seems as though that as, as, as much as the authorities try to squeeze the church and try and, and destroy the church, actually God continues to move. And so that's the second thing, that while the church will encounter persecution, God's plan for salvation and renewal cannot and won't be thwarted by humans or devils or anything else in all creation. You just have to see this example here in verse 19. An angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go and stand in the temple courts and tell the people about this new life. They put them in the prison to shut them up. An angel takes them out so they can keep going. It's not going to be thwarted by any human attempt. God's plans for renewal and salvation will not be thwarted. And so we have a wonderful opportunity here that while we might experience persecution, the gospel will go out and people who encounter him and have their lives utterly transformed. The modern day parable, Disney parable, Finding Nemo, I think always speaks so well to this. You know in that moment when they're in the dentist and Nigel the pelican, he flies into the window and the prime minister loses his tooth um, and then uh, Nigel then says to Nemo, he says to him, Nemo, where's Nemo? Um, he had a really strong Australian accent, which is brilliant, so everyone should watch it, because it's just good for your soul to hear an Australian accent. And, um, and he, he's like, I want to tell you about your dad. And uh, Nemo said, my dad? And then he proceeds to say how this rescue mission, it doesn't matter what he encountered, sharks, jellyfish, angelfish, whatever it might be, there was nothing that was going to stop that father from reaching and rescuing his son. And when you watch that little clip, I almost burst into tears every time because it, 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 I get struck. It's very weird when you're watching a children's film and you're like, this beautiful moment. I'm like, oh, God, you're so kind. And, 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 but it is so true that there is nothing in all creation that will stop God from being able to reach his children and bring them home. Nothing will thwart God's plans for renewal and salvation in this day. And I've said this before, the gospel can't be contained. If we try and contain it, it will flow out in other ways. I want us to be a church that doesn't look to contain the gospel, but we look to be a place where the gospel flows. Because God's plan to bring salvation, renewal, and hope to the world can't be stopped. No human, no devil can do it. And we see this in the New Testament, that every time there's a human attempt to stop the move of God, there is, there is stories of rescue and deliverance. Again, think of China. It's happening all the time. In the midst of this extreme persecution, the kingdom of God continues to advance. So as I've already said, we are living in a time of unprecedented revival. And so I have this, this even though our culture might be telling us that the church is dead, we don't have any, any chance of growing again, that we're going to be all gone by 2050 or whatever they might be saying. I believe that that, that, is, that couldn't be further from the truth. And I feel to my very core that we're right on the edge of another revival. I think that if our church, this is why the furnace, can I say, is the most important thing that we do as a church, that we get on our knees and we pray that God would move in power, that he would draw people home. Um, because I think that's what we need. We need a supernatural move of God through our churches that will call the prodigals home.
And this, for me, is why our prayer meetings are so important. And so if I can encourage you again, come and be part of it. Come and get on your knees with us. You know, when I think about what the furnace is about, it's passionate prayer, where God, you know, God does something in our hearts. He moves um, in, in our town. And then we are being prepared for the return of the prodigals. My sense increasingly is that God is asking this church and the, ch- the church, how much do you want this? How much do you want this? How much do you want to see salvation and renewal in our days? And how is that reflected in your prayer life, in your fasting, in your giving, in the way that you live, your words, your deeds, and your life? How much do we want this? For me, I'm utterly consumed with it. That's why I don't stop talking about it. I'm really sorry if it comes across like a broken record or massively condemning. I don't intend it to be like that. I'm hoping that it's inspirational. Sometimes I'm not, though. Sometimes I can be a bit overwhelming, and I'm very sorry about that. But I'm longing to see, when I look at our, at our town, I look at our culture, I see the brokenness. I know that Jesus can heal hearts. I know he can transform lives. I know that um, the guilt and the pain that I so often feel um, is healed and redeemed and restored by Jesus Christ. Um, that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy us other than God. And so, bearing in mind that the persecution is real, that, that God won't be stopped, here's the question for us as a church and for you as a Christian, if you, are, if you call yourself a Christian here today. Is the good news of Jesus Christ worth causing a disturbance for and risking the persecution that may follow? That's the question. And honestly, when I look at my own life, I haven't experienced serious amounts of persecution. Maybe a little bit of mockery here and there. And actually, I find myself asking myself the question again, do I make enough of a disturbance by the way that I live? Do people even know I'm a Christian? Do I believe that this is good news that can transform a city? For Peter, it was an absolute yes. No doubt. He believed that Jesus brings repentance and forgiveness, and it did not matter what he went through. He was going to continue to speak for him, the gospel was of infinite value. It was such good news. And, and we know it. Those of us who, who have experienced God, the very presence of God, know the goodness of the gospel, will know that it is a beautiful thing. It heals, it saves, it restores, it fulfills, it brings rest, and it ultimately brings renewal to all things where God's kingdom will reign. It is reigning and it will reign where sin, death, dying, pain, sorrow, and all of those things will be done with forever. And this is what Jesus achieved on the cross for us to believe, both now and forever. It's such good news. So I've kind of made a decision in my own heart, and I'd love you to hold me accountable, is that I'm committed to making Jesus known, sharing the gospel in the way that I live, in the way that I speak, even if it costs me. Because it is good news. And this Christmas, that's what it's going to be about. Um, we are like Luke chapter 2, verse 10. It says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this Christmas. We're going to be telling the people of Felton, Don't be afraid. Fear's massive, right? You think about Brexit, you feel about the, all the pressures on people. And the, these pressures are from the youngest to the very oldest. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news. That will cause great joy. How many people do we know that are just longing for some joy? Just a break. I'd love to smile, love to laugh. 
That's what Jesus brings. It's for all people. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to make it our business to let everybody know that there is good news. And this good news will bring good joy. And this good news that brings great joy is for you. And that's what we're going to be doing this Christmas. And so I'd love to invite you to be involved. Um, and, and bear in mind those two things. A persecution may be the result of us getting involved. But know this, that God's kingdom and the advancement of the gospel won't be thwarted um, by that persecution. Uh, it will grow. And uh, so um, that will do. I've got another story, but I've gone on for quite a long time. I was trying to bring my average down for preaching time, but <laughs> failed today, so I was 